And hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 102 of the weekly Yes And podcast. This is Travis Thomas. Today's episode is called Humor is a Choice with Andrew Tarvin. So back to interviewing some inspiring people who are doing some uh, really inspiring work. Andrew Tarvin is one of those. We'll get to him in a minute, but wanted to thank everyone for listening to the weekly Yap. Uh, Again, episode 102. And uh, if you don't know me, I'm the host of the weekly Yes And podcast, also the creator of Live Yes And, which is liveyesand.com, or you can follow me on social media at liveyesand. And if you enjoy the weekly Yes And podcast, would love for you to go to iTunes and give me a rating or write a review and uh, flatter my ego as much as humanly possible. Yes, I would love that. So here we are, episode 102. want to give a shout out to some friends of ours at OM Guatemala Retreats. Uh, a, a friend of mine works with this organization. They do these amazing retreats down in Guatemala, where also I have another dear friend. We've never made it to Guatemala, so I'm hoping maybe this is the impetus that gets uh, Hollister and I down to Guatemala because OM Guatemala retreats, uh, uh, it's, it's the, the yoga retreats uh, that happen down there. Uh, there's three coming up this summer, July 8th through the 14th, August 19th through the 25th, and September 2nd through the 8th. And they look amazing. If you go to the website, www.omguatemala.com. Uh, I know the OM is for OM, OM Guatemala, but um, obviously I'm trying to make it as easy for you as possible to find them. So OM Guatemala or OM Guatemala Retreats, omguatemala.com. Make sure you check them out. You can mention that you found their information with Travis from Livia Sand. I don't know if that gets you anything, but uh, it probably makes me feel good. And it lets them know that you listen to the weekly yap. So there you go. Check them out. Also, make sure you check out our events page. We always have another uh, Get Unstuck in 10 Days program happening. You can find that information under events at liveyesand.com. All right, episode 102, Andrew Tarvin. Uh, I was going through videos on the Applied Improvisation Network. For those of you who don't know what the AIN is, it's a network, uh, a global network of, of people who are in the field of improvisation like myself, who are doing you know, uh, work in the field even beyond just performance on stage. I've never had the opportunity to go to um, one of these uh, conferences. It's a yearly conference, but I love watching the content that is out there. So I found Andrew Tarvin uh, through the uh, the AIN network. Uh, he has a TEDx talk, which is really, really entertaining and engaging. He is the world's first human engineer. He gave himself that title. Uh, he started his own company called Humor That Works. He was a top-rated project manager at Procter & Gamble, um, and he's been a comedian that's performed all over the world, as well as a best-selling author. And uh, again, right, we get to talk a little improvisation. He started improvisation in college, and uh, most importantly, he has been called a cross between Hugh Jackman and Conan O'Brien. Physically, that's what he looks like. Or just Justin Timberlake eyes, which he talks about in his TEDx talk. Uh, I can see it. When you see him, you can see it. Yeah, it's a good time. Uh, so we talk about yes and mindset. We talk about the work that he's doing. And all in all, it's just a fun conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Tarvin. 
And so we have Andrew Tarvin on the phone. Uh, uh, you can check him out, andrewtarvin.com. Uh, he is the world's first humor engineer. I love that. He started the company Humor That Works. We're going to talk about that. Uh, and he left uh, a top rated. Uh, he left as a top rated project manager at Procter and Gamble to sort of follow his passion and his purpose to do what he's doing today. So, Andrew, welcome to the weekly Yes Am podcast. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited to to chat with you. Absolutely. So, uh, so Andrew, I found you sort of uh, watching some of the videos on the um, uh, Applied Improvisation uh, Network, and then I came across your TEDx uh, talk, which was super entertaining, uh, and then you were just really sort of speaking my language from a comedic, uh, from an improv, from a yes-and uh, uh, standpoint. And so, uh, just to kind of jump, uh, jump in, tell us about uh, what it means to be sort of the first humor engineer and the work that you're doing with Humor That Works. Yeah, uh, happy to. So, uh, humor engineer, it's, it's a, uh, if you've never heard of uh, the term, it's because I made it up, uh, <laughs> created it, but it's, it's really kind of the intersection of, of what I do and, and what I'm passionate about. So, the, the most important word probably for me is engineer. I've always been an engineer, you know, uh, as a kid, kind of taking things apart and putting them back together again, and uh, always playing with computers and always being obsessed with efficiency. Uh, I remember in uh, the fifth grade getting really excited when I discovered that if you put all the like silverware together when you're loading a dishwasher, you can save like 20 seconds on the unload. Um, you know, really obsessed with the fi- always trying to figure out how I can do things, you know, the least amount of work possible for the most amount of gain, uh, all that kind of stuff. So always been engineering-minded. I uh, went to The Ohio State University, got a degree in computer science and engineering, and after I graduated, I started working at uh, Procter & Gamble. Uh, as a project manager and business analyst. And uh, what I realized at P&G was that uh, while I was very, very good with computers, because you can be efficient with computers, uh, I wasn't as good with humans, because uh, you can't be efficient with humans, because they have emotions and feelings and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's an, uh, that, those, I, those annoying know, emotions. Kind of like, yeah. Well, exactly, yeah. Uh, and, as, and as a stereotypical you know, nerd, I didn't necessarily have the, the skill set I needed to be effective with people. But I had started doing improv and stand-up in college because best, my best friend wanted to start an improv comedy group and many people had forced me to join. And as I did that more and more, I started to realize that the same skills you need to be effective as an improviser are actually some of the same skills you need to be effective with people, whether it's in the workplace or at home or, um, you know, it's kind of out on the street, you know, yes and being one of those kind of key principles. And uh, so I started to explore that intersection of humor in the workplace, improv in business, happiness and productivity. Uh, started to see that there's a lot of research around it, so it wasn't just me that saw these benefits, but there are studies that were done on the value of humor and the value of improvisation, and so started to, to do that more in my own work, um, found the benefit of it, and then started teaching other people that as well, and, and ultimately left P&G in, in 2012 to uh, focus on Human Networks as my training company and the speaking brand of, of getting this message out there for how people can use humor to be more effective. So, so what was that like uh, having that courage to to step away from a, a a great job, and to believe that you saw enough value in this idea of of humor in the workplace? And so, where did that sort of leap? Where did that connection come from that gave you the courage to make that jump? Yeah, well, I, I'll say that uh, being a project manager, I am relatively risk adverse. Uh, which people are a little bit surprised by, like, but yeah, you left this job, or I was also a nomad for a period of time. They're like, how do you, how can you be risk adverse and like live out of two carry on bags? And 
and where that comes from is a little bit of planning and, and uh, perspective change as well. So uh, the first thing I would say is when I decided that I think, you know, when I, when I was like, okay, I think I want to leave PNG, I created a list of all the things that I needed to accomplish before I could leave that would give me confidence that I could do it. So they were, you know, have X number of clients that I've worked with where I would take vacation days to go and work with a client or I'd leave the office a little bit early uh, go do some work and then go back into the office. Um, so that was one thing is make sure I have X number of clients, make sure that I have a website, make sure that I have some testimonials and some images of me doing it. Uh, and also save up money. You know, I, I wanted to save up enough money so that if, um, I didn't, if I wasn't successful, if I didn't make any money that I wouldn't starve to death. I, I mean, I had to eat cheaper, but, uh, basically had that as the background. And once I checked off all those things from that list, I was like, okay, now I can leave. Now I have a reason to believe that I will be successful with this. And uh, so that's when I kind of put in my, my notice with P&G. And I stayed on a couple more months after that just to kind of close out the fiscal year. And that was in uh, June of 2012, uh, so July 1st, 2012, was my first day kind of full-time doing this. And it's been that way ever since. Uh, so I'd say that, that's one of them is kind of the prep work. The other thing about um, taking the leap, or anytime I've made a big decision, I kind of ask myself, three questions, um, and I think those three questions are helpful in terms of framing what is perceived to be a big risk. The first question I ask in any decision is, uh, what's the worst that can happen? Mm-hmm. And uh, the worst is always death, uh, but uh, after death, uh, usually it's you know not too bad. So I figure, okay, if I leave PNG and if, say I fail miserably or I, I hate it, I hate being an entrepreneur, I hate speaking or whatever it is, I was like, okay, I can get another tech job. You know, I, I figured with P&G on the resume, my network, the fact that I was a computer engineer with, a, you know, some social skills, I was like, I should be able to get another job. So I'll just, you know, if I hate it, I'll get another job. Uh, the second question that I ask is, you know, when I'm old and gray, what will I regret more not doing? Um, and I figured, you know, when I was lying on my deathbed or when I was 80 years old, I would regret not trying it, not starting out, you know, going out on my own and seeing if I could be successful with, with this thing that I'm passionate about. Um, and then the third question that I ask is what makes for the better story? I remember hearing kind of that, maybe it's cliche or, or not, but, uh, you know, if, if anybody wrote a story about your, like a movie about your life, would anyone care to watch it? Or if they wrote a book, would anyone care to read it? And so I've kind of lived by that of like, all right, if I'm deciding between two things, what makes for a cooler story? And yeah. I felt like, you know, starting my own company makes for kind of a, a cooler, interesting story. And even if it fails, right, it gives me something to, to talk about and to say that at least I went out and tried to do it. Absolutely. So just to sort of recap those three points, the first one being what's the worst thing that can happen? The second one mm-hmm. being um, not wanting to look back on life uh, and having any regrets, and, uh, yep. and and the third one, which I love, is yeah, which which makes a better story. You know, it's it's funny. It's often you know working with a lot of people, whether in sort of the coaching realm or uh, as a mentor. You know, especially when someone is going through sort of a, a difficult period of their life, or uh, they're sort of in, in in one of the valley moments of their life. It's you know, I often will say you know what, wow, this is really going to be interesting in your book. You know, just that, that idea of it's, it's the tough stuff. It's the, you know, the difficult choices that, that end up making a much more interesting story down the line. So I I love that that's one of your criteria. Yeah. And there's a, there's a great speaker named Jason Kotecki. He runs, uh, basically kind of like, uh, he believes in adult-itis where people should return back to the play, you know, the amount of play that we did as kids and that people suffer from adult-itis. But 
Uh, I remember him kind of joking. He's like, speakers and, and sometimes comedians and stuff, they're sometimes the only group that will like hear something that's that ha- bad that's happened to you and be like, oh, man, you're so lucky. You'd be like, wow, your house burned down and you broke your arm and, uh, uh, you know, your flight, whatever, you know, this thing happened. You're so lucky. You have, now have a new keynote written for you. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And, right. And so it's like <laughs> that kind of joke of like, yeah, this is going to be, you know, it becomes part of a story. And I think that, you know, kind of one of the things that I, I talk with some of clients about and, and people that are trying new things is that for me, failure is just data, Right. It's just um, the idea that if you haven't succeeded, it's a growth mindset of Carol Dweck, right? If you haven't succeeded, you just haven't succeeded yet. And so if you go out and you try something and you don't do well at it, then you've at least, you know, hopefully you've learned something from it. And the yes-and mentality says once you've kind of built these experiences together, right, how do you bring them together and yes-and your, your past? And I think that's a big part of what humor engineering is for me. It's I didn't become a computer engineer so that I could do this later, and I didn't start doing improv so that I could become a speaker. But yes, adding those two experiences and expertise together into a new thing, it's like now created a, uh, an interesting kind of passion and, and, and role for me, really. No, absolutely. I mean, I think your, your example there is exactly sort of uh, that that spirit of, of that yes and uh, mindset, which is, yeah, not, not being able to control an outcome. Uh, but being able to constantly use sort of what life throws our way and what sort of situations arise and every experience that comes up and and uh, and treating it as a a collaborative opportunity compared to um, even when it's disappointing, even when it's unfortunate. Um, yeah, absolutely. So tell me, for you, so you, you started, uh, you got into improvisation in college with with, with a friend. And uh, you guys started to uh, rehearse a lot and do more shows and perform more uh, on campus. When did sort of the, the principles of improvisation or, or really the, the yes and aspect really sort of start to hit you in a, a, a deeper or a larger meaningful way? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, it, it was certainly like over time it was an experience that, um, you know, when the, part of the value of doing improv and being a part of a class or a group or that kind of thing is that you're constantly practicing yes and and so I think that it kind of like just started to seep into my life without even kind of realizing it just I you know it started to become a little bit more positive and started to kind of think in that frame frame of mind of yeah how can I build off of this right it's it's the same as the the corporate speak of like there are no problems in the corporate world right there's only opportunities uh, and, and yes, and it's basically kind of that same language as a way to look at the world and say, okay, how do I build off of it from here? And so I'd say that, you know, it certainly took some time, at least from a performance standpoint. I remember when we first started, like, I would be nervous the entire day. Uh, like, I could hardly eat the entire day of a show. And then uh, did a few shows and got better. And then I'd be like, okay, I can eat for the entire afternoon before a show. Morning I was fine, but afternoon was tough. Uh, and then we got to like, okay, I'm good, except for like the two hours leading up to the show and then an hour up leading up to the show. And then um, I got more comfortable with improv and then I started doing more and more stand-up and then it was the same way. Like I had no problem doing improv, but then for the entire day leading up to a stand-up show, I'd be completely nervous. And, you know, just with that practice and repetition, it became more and more kind of second nature to the point that it's like, oh, if you're like, oh, you need to go on stage and fill 20 minutes right now. I'd be like, okay, no problem. Let's go. Um, and I think kind of in that same vein of like probably in that same level of starting to be comfortable on stage, probably at that same time started to get comfortable with some of those, those insights and, and thoughts. And even still, there are times where like, you know, I'm, I'm much better in front of a group of 500 than I am a group of five. 
sure. um, when the context is speaking. And so there's still certainly some some areas of opportunities, times that I get nervous, and then you know times that I, I still have to, to try to like consciously fall back on that that yes and mentality. Yeah, and so so you have that experience in college, and so you you gain that experience, you gain that confidence, you find yourself at Procter and Gamble, which I, I assume just kind of became this this larger proving ground uh, for all of these skills that uh, you would, you would learn in college. So, in what ways, and what kind of practical and relevant ways did you sort of carry that mindset into being a, a project manager at P and G? Yeah, well, it started uh, it started pretty simply, and a lot of times just for kind of myself. So I remember having this experience where <laughs> I was in a meeting, and I was like bored to death in the meeting. And the problem was that I was the one leading the meeting. <laughs> uh, and so I was like, oh, if I'm bored while I'm talking, they've got to be bored listening. Yeah. And so started, part of it started with just wanting to enjoy my work more. So for presentations, I, I remember reading that Alfred Hitchcock used to include himself in pretty much every movie that he did, like either in the background or in the shadow or whatever. Maybe right. the, the modern day equivalent is Stan Lee is in every single one of the Marvel films. Mm-hmm. And so I started to add an image of myself in every presentation that I did. Um, just for fun, just as kind of a way to, to lighten things up. I started adding more images to my presentations as a whole, and I started teaching some improv exercises to, to my team members and started adding jokes at the end of my email just as a way to kind of entertain myself in the, the work day to kind of say, well, you know, I have to do this work anyway. I might as well find ways to make it more fun. And uh, then at PNG, I proclaimed myself the corporate humorist of PNG. Uh, so that was my first experience of just making up a job title. And um, I wrote a blog internally about kind of some of the stuff that I was doing humor-wise. And I would, you know, if we were doing a team offsite, I'd be like, hey, can I need, you know, 20 minutes of icebreakers in the morning? And I uh, would use some improv exercises for that. Or, and then that went well. So then it was like, hey, can I need like a communication workshop talking about improvisation and, and humor? And so people were like, they enjoyed the icebreaker, so they said sure. And, and so it kind of grew from there. And in that, in that time during that research while blogging about things, that's when I found things like the Applied Improv Network and went to a couple conferences and saw that people were doing this in a very cool kind of structured way to provide benefits to organizations and you know, it wasn't just so like here. Let, here's a fun exercise. Do it because it's fun. But it right. was, here's an exercise that we can now debrief and talk about, so that you know how to be more effective as a listener, or know how to uh, more clearly articulate an idea to another person, or how you can build relationships with people, etc. So, yeah, definitely, PNG is definitely a, a, a kind of a training ground for that. Got great feedback from people, both on what worked well and what didn't, and it was really kind of that that working became the inspiration to be like, all right, if, if I can be the corporate humorist of P&G internally, then maybe people would like this externally. And that's when I started Human That Works part-time as a thing that was just basically a external version of what I had started internally. Yeah. And so as, as you found sort of your stuff going into, you know, going into to, uh, workplaces, going into the corporate world, you know, it's it's uh, you talk about this in your uh, in your TEDx talk about um, you wouldn't think that uh, introducing the idea of humor would be a hard sell, right? Uh, what are the you know what are the negative effects of, of humor? You really can't find any. But as as, as you're going in and, and and you're presenting and you're and you're working with with cultures, um, if if humor is is such a common sense idea. Uh, what are you noticing as the real issues that are getting in the way in workplaces from 
from them being sort of a, uh, a humor-rich environment or just being healthy environments? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think part of it is a little bit of a fear from some people. One, because, you know, humor is just a tool. It is, there's a lot that can be used for good, but then, yeah, if you, um, if people think about kind of the traditional kind of humor that they're used to kind of growing up, where it's a lot of sarcasm and satire and maybe it's poking fun of people, or if you think of like sometimes comedy clubs where it's like the topics tend to be, um, you know, they're sometimes on things that would be inappropriate in the workplace. People kind of have a fear and, and assumption that that's the type of humor that that means that they bring into the workplace. And so the fear is that um, one part of the so I, I ran a study through my site because I wanted to understand why people didn't use humor in the workplace more, and the number one reason was because they didn't think their boss or coworkers would approve. And I think that part of that comes from not understanding kind of the styles of humor that they could use. And then also, too, that for whatever reason, kind of growing up, we have this we have this belief or feeling that work has to feel like work. That, you know, if we're having a good time, then maybe we're not taking our work seriously. Right. And the, the truth is, is that, you know, we, because we are humans, right, because we aren't computers, because we have to deal with things like emotion, Humor is actually really, really important. It's, a lot of people think of it as a nice to have, right? Nobody, nobody hates laughter, as far as I know. No one hates feeling joy in their body, um, but they, you know, think that oh, it would be, if I enjoy my work more, it'd be kind of nice. But it's not all that important. But the reality is that with the way that things are today, and the way that we as humans have emotions, like it's important because of things like stress. Right, like in the industrial age, if you, you know, everything was about efficiency because it was all about how can you produce the most widgets in the shortest amount of time, and how you felt that day didn't really have that big of an impact, right? If, as you're stamping plates or if you, as you're running a line or that kind of thing, it has a little bit of an impact, but not nearly as big of an impact as your emotions have if you are a, you know, a middle manager or if you are um, someone who has to, you know, do creative work for their, uh, their job. Like those types of things are impacted by emotion. Cause if you don't feel well, if you're sick, if you're tired, if you're burned out, stressed out, um, worn out, etc., you're not going to be as productive. And that's why our humor is valuable because it allows us to kind of recharge. It keeps us engaged. It helps to improve our productivity. It relieves stress. And, you know, if you think about all the negative effects of stress in terms of muscle tension and, um, increased blood pressure and all that kind of stuff, laughter counteracts all of those negative effects. And so it becomes very, very important in the knowledge economy where our emotions impact our ability to get things done. Humor is a great way to get into a more positive, creative mindset. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, it's funny. I was just talking to a group of soccer players last night and, and just this idea of when you when you try to play cautious or careful, is when you tend you tend to be more timid, you tend to be more tense, you tend to be more stressful compared to kind of being more reckless and free, where you're more relaxed, you're more, uh, you know, there's usually more energy, there's there's, there's a sense of fluidity to you. Um, and and one idea that I've talked a, a lot about, uh, especially doing um, uh, presentation training over the years, is don't mistake professional with serious, right? I think that speaks to what you're saying a little bit, how we often think to be professional, you've got to, we, we come across as stiff and serious at the same point at the same time and how there can be a sense of joy and, uh, and, and fun and enthusiasm yet still be professional at the same time. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a great distinction, right? That's a great way to to phrase it because I mean, if you look at examples of leaders who have used humor, it's like, would you consider Warren Buffett unprofessional or Abraham Lincoln unprofessional or, 
you know, all these different people that have talked about either the benefits of humor have been very clear users of humor in kind of a positive way. Um, I think that's a great distinction. And, and the reality is that, you know, I work with some some more conservative groups, some more um, serious groups, uh, and I think a lot of times they appreciate that I'm an engineer and that I come from, like, the reason why I teach humor is because it works. Not because it's fun, that's an added bonus, but because it works with humans. And that's why groups work with me, because they believe, if, if you are passionate about your message, if you believe that whatever it is that you're doing, it has an impact, is important, then you would do whatever you needed to to have the most impact you could. And humor is one of those things because it helps to improve communication skills and get people to listen, helps them remember things longer because it helps to relieve stress and increases productivity or because it improves perceived leadership skills and helps to diffuse tension or because, you know, X, Y, or Z, all these benefits of humor, you would want to take advantage of them uh, regardless of what you do if you want to have the biggest impact you can. Right, right. Yes, there, there, there's nothing that uh, that speaks to uh, to uh, corporations like uh, making that bottom line connection. And uh, yeah, you're you're exactly exactly right. With that that sense of humor in the workplace, if people enjoy themselves, clearly they're going to show up more enthusiastic. That they're more enthusiastic, they're going to want to work harder, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in full transparency here, Andrew, you know that I'm in the uh, uh, our minivan recording this podcast, uh, uh, the Honda Odyssey minivan. Uh, that's not a plug yet. We're working on a sponsorship. Um, working on working on getting that product placement. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, I, I just uh, I, 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 for podcasting and safety of the family too. Exactly, and 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 just to let people, I'm not driving while doing this podcast. It is parked. Um, and also, uh, another thing I can't control with the podcast is, is when the leaf blower guy is going to decide to uh, <laughs> to go around. So if it sounds like there's a swarm of killer bees occasionally coming by the uh, the van. Uh, it's just the leaf blower guy, and I can actually hear him right now. So I just want to be completely transparent. Um, and, yeah, well, I mean, and hopefully, hopefully, like even as a leaf blower, that's the, you know you can still find ways to have fun with what it is that you do. And I think that you know one of the other things that we um, that we talk about in my programs is that it, you know it's my belief that job satisfaction is 100% your own responsibility. So when I go and work with or- organizations, sometimes it's on a consulting basis building out programs for them, but a lot of times it's talking to individual, talking to a group of people that at an individual level to, to focus on that, it is a choice that they make, right? So whether you are a leaf blower or you are a barista at Starbucks or you are uh, the leader of a marketing department in a large company, how much you enjoy your work comes down to a lot in terms of your own choices. Like, obviously, there's things that are going to be out of your control, but you control, one, how you react to things, and then, two, you control things like how you do your work, what you do on your way into work, what you do on your way home from work. And they're all opportunities to be able to add humor, and you can do it kind of in your own way. And so that's one of the other things that I, when working with groups where they're like, listen, I, I agree that humor is valuable, but no, my workplace is deadly serious. And it's like, well, the truth is that no one can control how you think. So... For example, no one can prevent you from listening to a comedy podcast on your way home when you're driving in your fantastic Honda Odyssey um, as a way to relieve stress and show up more present for your family when you get there. Or, you know, one of the things that I do when I get bored going through emails, I'll start to read each of the emails in a different accent in my head. Mm. And no one can stop me from doing that, right? Even if I have a very serious manager, no serious manager can come up to me and be like, hey, you're reading emails in an accent in your head, stop it. Right, right. right. Uh, it's very much a, a choice. 
Yes, and, until you start doing them out loud, and then you've got to you take that right. into consideration. Yeah, and then, then maybe you're that weird guy kind yeah. of in the corner, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, want, I want to talk about that weird guy here in a second, but in, in your TEDx talk, you, you shared the idea that humor is a choice, uh, and I love that. I think you've really been speaking to that the, la- the last few minutes, and, you know, again, um, uh, I share more about that, especially when it comes to our individual ability to to choose for ourselves that regardless of our environment, you know, right, we can still choose um, choose to have that healthy sense of humor. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, so one of my favorite comedians is Eddie Izzard. Love him, British comedian, yep. um, very, very smart, great style. He has a bit called Cake or Death. Um, and there's a little bit more context and everything to it, but it basically comes down to a series of people being asked if they would rather have cake, eat cake, or if they would rather die. Right, so your choice is cake or death, and so it's kind of a joke of how everyone coming through the line is like, oh, well, I think I'll, I think I'll go with cake. Um, like, wait, are you sure you don't want death? No, I think I'll go cake. And I think in some ways, like to use humor in the workplace or not to as a choice is to me as simple as the, as the choice of cake or death. Right? Would you rather enjoy your work more going into the workplace and actually enjoy going into it, looking forward to it a little bit more, finding things that make you laugh or smile throughout the day? Uh, improving your relationship kind of with their coworkers and um, being a little bit and thinking a little bit more creativity and, uh, and creatively and outside the box, et cetera? Or would you rather uh, stick to a job that uh, and a, a way of working that you kind of just hate and you only survive because you work to live and uh, those 40 hours a week that you put in, you just you have to suffer through so that you have the other 128 hours, um, you know, left for things that you want to do. And it's, it's like, that's, that's the choice, right, is, is deciding if you want to. Now, obviously, there are things that once you've made that choice that we can make to make things easier because that's the number two reason why people don't use humor in the workplace is they say they don't know how. Mm. And it's my belief that, you know, I think people know how to – they've made friends laugh. they made other people smile and stuff. They just don't necessarily know how to do it in a more proactive way. And so I think there are a couple of things that can help with, with answering that how piece. I think the first thing that can help is understanding that humor is more broad than comedy. So, um, you know, the definition of humor that I use is that it's a comic, absurd, or incongruous quality causing amusement. So comedy is part of that. <laughs> but humor is also something that is a little bit different or maybe a little bit silly that causes amusement, that causes people to smile. So when I talk about humor in the workplace, it's not about making the workplace funny. It's about making the workplace a little bit more fun. And so once people kind of understand that, the, the, the barrier or the bar of what they feel like they have to do feels a little bit lower and feels a little bit more acceptable. Part of it is just being your authentic self at work. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing is to kind of think positive, inclusive. There's four styles of humor. Um, and one of the styles of affiliative humor is great for the workplace because it's positive and inclusive. So when you can think of positive inclusive things to say, so it's not about coming up with this great punchline that is a piece of sarcasm towards someone else, but maybe going, uh, you know, making a meeting a little bit more fun by starting with a question, uh, you know, that everyone goes around and answers or, um, you know, making Fridays a little bit more enjoyable because you have, I know some startups have beer 30, where at 4.30 on Fridays, um, everyone just cracks open a beer and chats with each other. Right. Um, you can do that with, you know, dessert or a uh, healthy food option or going for a walk. You know, there's all different types of ways that you can use humor in the workplace. Um, but think about it kind of from a positive and inclusive perspective. 
Yeah, I, I, I love that, being able to think about the idea that humor doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you have to be a, a comedian at work. You know, I, I love in your TEDx talk, again, that you talk a lot about sort of, you know, you clearly embrace your inner nerd, right? And I believe that all, all of us... All of, all of us are nerds in our own right, and we all nerd out about specific things. And um, and how that, obviously, that brings a richness, right? That it brings an authenticity and a richness to sort of who we authentically are. And uh, the, the other idea I love is that I think when it comes to comedy and humor, sometimes people often think that, well, I'm an introvert, and so, you know, it doesn't really apply to me. And, and, and knowing that sort of humor and comedy isn't really an introverted, extroverted thing. Um, I, I can attest some of the funniest people I've ever performed with on stage, off stage, extremely introverted. Um, and so I think in the workplace, a lot of times too, we, we often, you know, maybe see people as, as quieter or more introverted and, and, and think that, you know, maybe they don't have ideas or, or maybe they don't have anything to contribute, but often just the opposite when we give people the opportunity to share. Yeah, I mean, like, and then the humor is, is a skill, right? And so that's the other piece of the choice component of it is that humor is a skill, which means it can be learned. And, you know, I know that because, as I kind of share in the TEDx talk, is I'm someone who has had to learn how to use humor. And I learned it by doing improv and then later by doing stand-up. And other people can learn as well by taking an improv class or simply by being maybe a little bit more attuned to kind of the humor that they hear every single day. Uh, so when I'm talking with groups and they're kind of like and individuals are trying to learn, okay, well, how do I, you know, if I want to start, where do I start? And I think one starting point is just to kind of uh, have kind of a, a thought in your head that whenever you make someone laugh or whenever you're in a situation where you yourself are laughing day to day, kind of just look at it from an outside perspective for a second, you know, maybe a little bit later and, and you know, at the end of the day, be like, okay, what made me laugh today? What was it about that situation or what was it about that conversation? What was it about that experience, thinking about that? Uh, can help. Other times people, um, a lot of times experience uh, staircase wit, uh, which is kind of the phenomenon of like if you're in a conversation and then like later, maybe it's a couple hours later, you're like, oh my God, I could have said this thing. That's what I should have said was this thing. Um, that's actually a good thing because it means that you have kind of the comedic instinct. Uh, it just, you know, with practice and repetition, you need to shorten that time from having that haha moment from four hours later to three hours later to two hours later then happening in the moment, right? Because reflection on the past leads to action in the future, right? And think about it as you process these experiences and why the repetition is so important and as you get better and better at it, it's going to come quicker and quicker. I believe that's called the George Costanza is it jerk store uh, phenomena. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so Andrew, again, being respectful of your time here, uh, uh, one, I, one idea I, I want to just to bring up with you before we go here, and obviously in uh, for both of us here being in the U.S. and uh, the political climate right now, the the divisiveness that is happening in our country over so many issues from politics to social issues to things like that, the ability for humor to to be a unifying idea, but yet often we see it used as a divisive idea. Uh, from your work and from your standpoint, what can we do, uh, what role can humor play in sort of helping with the discourse or or just the the how we are communicating and working with one another? Yeah, well, I think you make a great point that it, it, humor can be used either way, right? It's, it's a double-edged sword and that it can be used for bringing people closer together or it can be used to divide more people. 
And, you know, I think, like you said, we see a lot of it, especially with sarcasm and satire, we use it as a way of, of seeing it to divide. And, and the problem with aggressive humor is that it, it can be cathartic. It can help us feel a little bit better. It can help us relieve some stress. But it doesn't change anything, right? You can point out absurdities about things, but it doesn't lead to improving the situation. And that's where more affiliative humor, self-enhancing humor can be a little bit more not only is it positive, bringing people closer together, but can also create a change. So I think part of it is intent, certainly, uh, is how we can do it. And I think the other thing is, you know, groups, it becomes a lot easier to, to, to dislike people when you can very easily put them into a bucket. When you can say, oh, well, you're just a Democrat, and you're just a Republican, or you're just, you know, you're male versus female, or you are, you know, whatever these buckets that we try to put people into. And uh, what humor does is allow us, allows us to recognize that we are more alike than we are different. Uh, so I was a nomad. Uh, I put all my stuff in storage and lived out of two carry-on bags for 18 months. And in the first 12 months, I had a goal of speaking and performing in all 50 states because I'm an engineer and I love checklists. And I was like, all right, if I'm going to travel, I want to do all the states. And I was able to do that and ultimately wrote a book about the experience called The United States of Laughter. And the reason why I wrote the book was I had these really cool experiences all across the country. And, and so the, the book is a story from each state that I went to. And I wanted to get the stories out there because all these different places that I went to, I found connection through comedy by making people laugh. Like when we get people to laugh, we kind of say, hey, we're on the same side here. We're both human beings. And at the end of the day, no matter kind of like, where you are and what you do and, and that kind of stuff. We are more alike than we are different. And, and maybe if we have that yes-and mentality, maybe if we have that recognition that we are humans and that humor helps us kind of define that humanity a little bit better, uh, that we will treat each other a little bit better, that we'll find the things that make us similar that we can kind of vote off of as opposed to find things that divide us and, and drive that wedge deeper. Well, that, that's that's an amazing, what an amazing experience that had to be. I uh, can't wait to read the book because uh, it sounds fantastic. And, and again, uh, what I've been speaking a lot about recently um, is, again, is just that the the power of empathy. And uh, obviously you experienced a ton of that when you were on the road. And again, I think the, the, the big idea I'm on right now is this, is, is this idea that there are no sides. Right. That, that, you know, we're, we're really good at putting people on sides of an issue or putting people into boxes based on who we think we are, who, the, who we think they are and, and how divisive that is compared to to really appreciating our differences and appreciating someone else's opinions, but not using that as a, as a, a limiting factor or using it as a way to create sides as a divide between between each other. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, what a wonderful uh, spirit of empathy that that had to be. Exactly, and I think that that's uh, like empathy is a, is a big part of it. And that's where I mean they've they've shown correlation between uh, people who are, are more effective at humor and their emotional intelligence as well. Like just to go back and kind of speak to another benefit of humor. But I think you're exactly right, and and that's the like you know it, it's gonna it requires that uh, you know more and more people go out there and create that. Right? It's it's the quotation that uh, you know for evil to to reign all all it requires is for good. Uh, good people to do nothing, right? And right. so, you know, for the people that want to make a change, how can we be a little bit more positive, get more empathy out there, create a kind of a yes and or a humor mindset a little bit more and, and look on ways how we can build things up as opposed to tear them down. Right. No, excellent, fantastic. Well, Andrew, I appreciate it. Uh, as your grandmother would say, WTF? 
Yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll let you clarify that real quick. <laughs> yeah, so that is, so my, my grandmother uh, started uh, texting me, and, and the kind of uh, punchline of the whole story is that uh, uh, she sent me WTF in a, in a text <laughs> message, and I was confused, uh, but it uh, turns out she, uh, she thought it meant, wow, that's fun. And so it's kind of uh, partially my belief that the, the world would be a better place if we all thought WTF like my grandmother and looked at the world and thought, wow, that's fun. I love it. I love it. Andrew, thanks so much. Again, Andrew, uh, for those of you listening, check out Andrew at andrewtarvin.com. He is the world's first humor engineer, the creator of Humor That Works. Andrew, uh, any other way for people to uh, to find you or get a hold of you? Yeah, well, I'd say if they're interested in the the humor training side, they can also find more information at humorthatworks.com. If uh, you want to kind of connect with me, uh, specifically, or if you like puns, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And I think pretty much all social media is uh, Drew Tarvin. Um, but uh, yeah, I post uh, kind of humor things, and that's a great way to, to connect with me. People are interested in, in that, for sure. Great, Andrew. Now, I'll post those links in this podcast as well. So uh, uh, thanks so much for your time. Um, really, uh, really impressed and uh, excited about all the work that you're doing. So, uh, So thanks for the time, and keep it up. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. You got it.